Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Where the history is wacky and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian And Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, on this episode of Dear World Love History, we're going to be taking a look at the Titanic, one of the most famous maritime disasters. Let's set the scene. It's cold. It's dark. An iceberg that under proper conditions could have been seen from several miles away was invisible until the last possible moment. Before we get into the nitty-gritty of the Titanic and the night she went down, let's talk about ice. Sounds pretty straightforward, right? You'd be wrong. So there's field ice, and then there are icebergs. Field ice is pretty much layers of ice that drift with the wind and the current all year long, whereas icebergs are gigantic masses of ice I know, sounds, again, like it should be, that break off from glaciers. When the Titanic set sail in 1912, it was coming off a mild Arctic winter. What does that mean and why do we care? This accelerated the splitting of the glaciers, which resulted in larger icebergs, which took even longer to melt as they drifted south. Because of this, the icebergs were drifting even further south into the way of the North Atlantic shipping lanes. So it's important to note that it's not a straight shot from Liverpool or Southampton to Halifax or New York. They already have to go further south. They do kind of like a little loop in order to avoid the northern Arctic seas and all those dangerous icebergs. So the fact that these icebergs are drifting even further south is just causing more and more danger. Occasionally, when the weather is mild enough, icebergs will actually split apart into smaller ice clumps called growlers. How many types of floating ice are there, you ask? You're probably asking. I know I did. There could be more, but we're done. This is the last one. Promise. So in the April of 1912, even with the milder weather, break apart into growlers. So now we have these icebergs crossing paths with the shipping lanes. Remember how earlier I mentioned the proper conditions to spot an iceberg? Let's tell you what those are. All right, so... On a clear day, that means it's sunny, it's bright outside, there's no fog, no rain, no nothing. Um, And you can spot an iceberg from the ship about 16 to 20 miles away. But once those conditions don't exist, so if it's foggy, if it's nighttime, if there's no moon, the closer you have to be to spot the iceberg. All right, so let's leave ice in our rear view for a bit. We're going to take a couple minutes to talk about uh, what it was like to sail across the Atlantic Ocean before they were making ships out of metal. So before the Titanic, before, you know, ships like the Lusitania, the ships were built out of wood. They had masts and sail, and it would take months to make the crossing from Europe to North America. And that's if the ship even made it at all. So on those crossings, there were, um, you know, those wonderful storms the Atlantic likes to cook up, uh, as well as those icebergs. And if the ship hit an iceberg, obviously there was no saving it. There was no time to get anyone anywhere. They didn't even have lifeboats. And if the ship got caught in a storm, then the storm could sink the ship. And the ship would be lost without a trace. No one knew where. No one knew how. No one knew what happened to the people on board, except for the ship is gone, and so are those people. So in come these 
bigger, better, safer ships. We've got ships that are being made out of metal now. They're not being made out of wood. We've got a couple of different liners that are in competition with one another, such as the Cunard Line, the White Star Line, and then we also have the two German lines, the Hamburg America and the Norddeutsche Lloyd. All the liners were battling for the Blue Ribbon, which was awarded to the fastest crossing across the Atlantic. So in response to the German ships, which were dominating, the Cunard Line eventually introduced the Lusitania and the Mauritania. Um, so with that, the Lusitania was actually able to win back the Blue Ribbon, and the German liners pretty much fell into oblivion. We'd never really hear from them again. So really, it's now Cunard and White Star that are battling it out to get that Blue Ribbon, that award that pretty much says they're the best ship out on the waters right now. All the lines wanted to win that Blue Ribbon because time is money, and the faster your ship can go, the faster you can go from point A to point B and get passengers where they need to go. And, you know, that can be really appealing for people, especially when they want to, don't want to be spending more time than they need to on a ship uh, across the ocean when they're getting seasick and feeling completely awful. So the better, the faster they can get to dry land, the better journey it is. And then Cunard, of course, they want to update their line. They really want to make it even more appealing for passengers to sail on their ships. So they built the... Ivernia, the Saxonia, and the Carpathia, which would actually be the most famous of the three, and we will be talking about the Carpathia later on in the Titanic episodes. While Cunard and White Star were the ones that were pretty much battling it out, the German liners had one advantage over them. They were docked in Southampton, whereas White Star and Cunard were docked in Liverpool. It was a lot easier to get to Southampton from London than it was to actually take the railway up to Liverpool. So first-class passengers, mainly the wealthy Americans, were heading towards the German liners because they really didn't want to make that trip. Yeah, they didn't want to make that extra journey. And White Star, noticing this, actually moved their service from Liverpool to Southampton as a result. That way they could compete better with those German liners and get those passengers back that they're losing. So this actually happened in 1907. White Star moved to Southampton for their service, where the their ships would call at New York, through Cherbourg and Normandy, Queenstown and Ireland, and when the ship made its return journey from New York, it would call at Plymouth in England as opposed to Queenstown on the way back. Now, White Star took it a step further in order to meet passenger needs, they basically dropped out of that speed race. They were no longer competing to get that blue ribbon. They decided that they were going to focus on the comfort of passengers as opposed to how fast the ship can go to get from one destination to another. They really wanted passengers to have a completely different and new experience on a ship that they hadn't had before that would keep them coming back to White Star. So in comes this guy, you know, not that important, really small, you may or may not have heard of him, guy by the name of John Pierpont Morgan. Otherwise known as J.P. Morgan. So he liked to buy things. And one of the things he purchased was White Star. And other shipping companies as well. He combined all of this under the International Mercantile Marine. From White Star, he actually took J. Bruce Ismay who was the son of Thomas Ismay, who was the founder of White Star. J. Bruce Ismay was one of the largest shareholders, and another one was actually 
Lord William Peary, who was the chairman of Harland and Wolfe, which was the Belfast shipbuilding company that actually built the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic. And even before this, White Star and Harland and Wolfe were linked. Fifty or so years preceding Morgan's IMM, Harland and Wolfe became White Star's exclusive shipbuilder. Thomas Ismay had a shipping route to Australia, but noticing at the end of the U.S. Civil War that more Europeans were flocking to America via the transatlantic route, he decided to actually cut that Australian route since it wasn't profitable to begin with, but he also knew he needed to be able to expand his ships. And Harlan and Wolfe agreed to finance this expansion with the caveat that they would become White Star's exclusive shipbuilders. Now, the very first ship that Harlan and Wolfe built for White Star was the Oceanic in 1870 in their shipyard in Belfast, Ireland. And after the Oceanic, they actually then built the Adriatic, the Germanic, the Arabic, the Coptic, the Ionic, and the Doric for White Star. Even then, the focus was comfort for the passengers, but Bruce Ismay wanted to do better. In 1907, Lord Peary had a dinner party where J. Bruce Ismay was actually in attendance, and during that dinner party, he had an idea. He thought of the three sister ships, the Titanic, the Olympic, and the Britannic, which at that time was going to be named the Gigantic. But he wanted these three ships to be the biggest to ever cross the Atlantic. He essentially wanted them to be like five-star luxury hotels on water. So he takes us to J.P. Morgan, and he's like, look, dude, I've got this amazing idea. There's these three ships, right? And they're enormous, and they're going to be amazing and luxurious, and passengers are going to love them. And J.P. Morgan was like, you know what, sir, you don't have to tell me twice. This is a fantastic idea. Let's do this thing. And, of course, J.P. Morgan would end up footing the bill for this venture. This was a business opportunity with countless potential, and this was going to be the biggest ship ever built. However... That is also what posed a problem because a ship of this magnitude, ships of this magnitude had never been built. There really was no construction site where they could be laid down. So in order to build these ships, Harlan and Wolf had to set aside three berths on Queens Island, which they then had to break down to make two large berths to lay down the keel for the Olympic and the keel for the Titanic. The two ships were built side by side. The Olympic was started in 1908, December of 1908, and the Titanic in March, March 31st, 1909, to be precise. Now, the man who was basically overseeing this entire endeavor was Thomas Andrews. If you've watched the film by James Cameron, Titanic, you'll have noticed him. He played a very big role in the film. So he played a big role in the building of the Olympic and the Titanic as well. Thomas Andrews was Peary's nephew through his mother, and at age 16, he actually went to the shipyard to work under his uncle. He worked in every department. He worked his way up in in the company throughout his entire life, so that by 1905, when he was 32 years old, he was actually named chief of the design department, and two years later, he was named managing director. Now, Andrews was a workaholic. He usually got to work around 4 o'clock in the morning, which is pretty early for the shipyard. Workers didn't get there until 7, 7.30 because they really need the sunlight to work. Um, and the workers actually had a relatively normal shift. They were usually done by 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, Andrews was very much a company man. He 
was dedicated to his work, and I mean, why wouldn't you be if you love what you do? But he was also very dedicated to the workers themselves. Everyone really liked him. He was kind, generous, and he stood up for his workers as well. The ships took more than two years to build, and when they started, they actually identified three scenarios that would cause the ships to sink. It could run aground, it could collide with another ship, or another ship could actually collide with it. So in order to prevent the first scenario, they actually gave the Titanic a double bottom. And to prevent the second or third scenario, they built 15 bulkheads that split into 16 watertight compartments. And what this pretty much meant was that if the front of the ship was smashed, it would stay afloat if the first four compartments were flooded, or if the ship was actually collided in its side with its two central compartments flooded, it would still be able to remain afloat. And those 16 watertight compartments, the officers could actually close the doors to those compartments with the flip of a switch. As for the bulkheads, they were meant to keep water from spilling over uh, from one bulkhead to another and taking the ship down by the bow. But, while good in theory, they didn't build the bulkheads high enough, which kind of takes away from the ship being unsinkable. So now let's take it to the outside of the ship for a hot sec. So, fun fact, the fourth funnel of the Titanic was actually a dummy, the one at the very back. So the designers thought that a fourth funnel, that the more funnels you have, the faster the ship is going to go. And since... The Mauritania and the Lusitania had four funnels. White Star couldn't possibly do anything else but have four funnels as well. So now the question is, what's in a name? The full name of the White Star Line Company is actually Oceanic Steam Navigation Company. And when it came to the naming of the ships, White Star generally ended all their names with IC. So, you know, Oceanic, Adriatic, Titanic, you know, you get the picture. Whereas Cunard Line actually ended it with IA, which is how you get Saxonia, Lusitania, Mauritania, etc. Now, the three sister ships of the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic actually were the Olympic-class ships. And the Titanic got its name from Greek mythology, you know, the Titans. So those are the guys that came along before the Olympians, before Zeus and his siblings. They ruled the Earth before they were supposed to be you know, these big, amazing, strong characters in mythology. And Titanic itself actually means gigantic, uh, which is kind of funny because they were going to have the gigantic and then one called gigantic, but regardless, that's neither here nor there. By the time the ships were done being built, not only would they be the biggest ships for White Star, they would be the biggest ships built in the world. You may have heard the Titanic referred to as unsinkable. However, White Star actually never said that. That phrase, practically unsinkable, was written in Shipbuilder magazine when it was reviewing the Titanic and her sister ships. So they're the ones that actually made the claim. Now while these ships are being built, J. Bruce Ismay had his own battle to wage uh, across the pond in New York, uh, where bigger piers had to be built for the Titanic, for the Olympic, and for the Britannic to dock. So he was duking it out with the New York Harbor Board to get these piers lengthened. And in the end, they finally were. All in all, this was a really expensive endeavor. Aside from the building of the ships, they had to also build a new road that was lit by electric lamps in order to get supplies from one place to the actual shipping yard. 
In addition to that, they also had two paid workers, uh, which, you know, building these enormous large ships, as you can imagine, takes thousands and thousands of workers coming into the shipyard every day, working from 7.50 in the morning until 5.30 at night, as well as half days on Saturdays. And as we mentioned earlier, it took two years to build these ships, over two years. The cost of that, the cost of paying the workers, adds to the total cost of building the Titanic. Now, in regards to the workers, building a ship is dangerous. And at the time, it was either you take the work or you starve, especially in Belfast. So over the course of the two years the ships were being built, there were six deaths. And 250 accidents. Reported accidents, mind you. So the first person that actually died, very unfortunate, anyone died really, very unfortunate. But the first person wasn't even an adult. It was actually a 15-year-old boy known as Sam Scott. So he was a catch boy, which meant that when the rivets came out of the furnace, he actually caught them in a bucket before getting them to the guys that were actually going to hammer them into the steel plates. So he actually fell and he was taken to the hospital and died later that day of a head injury. His father died six months later when he was working and a section of decking came out from under him and he felt of his death. Then there was also John Kelly, who died after a fall, as well as William Clark and Robert Murphy the following month. Also of a fall. Um, as you can see, there's a bit of a pattern when it comes to the deaths while building the Titanic. And Robert Murphy's son, Robert Jr., died a few months later when he was working on the Olympic. When we said there were 250 reported accidents, that's exactly what we mean. There are probably way more accidents that went unreported, things like burned hands, um, scratches or cuts, things that the men decided they didn't want to report because they didn't want to be kicked off the yard for the day. They didn't want to make a fuss out of it, so they would have gone home and treated it to the best of their ability. And... It never would have made it to any of the bosses in White Star and never would have made it into their um, record. Now, in addition to the dangers of falling, there were so many other dangers that could happen on the shipyard. You could go deaf because the sound of metal on metal is jarring to the human ear. It actually scars the human ear. Eventually, there's only so much the human body can take. When it comes to situations like this, the human ear especially is very sensitive. So men could go deaf while working on those ships, which could contribute to having issues with balance and, and falling. Especially after going deaf, it'll be difficult to find any work. There was no protective equipment in place at the time. So hard hats like men wear on a construction site, yeah, no, they didn't have any hard hats. There were no gloves. There was no protective eyewear except for those working directly in the line of welding. So pretty much if you weren't a welder, you needed to shield your eyes or look away in order to prevent blindness. All right, so you could go blind. You could go deaf. Um, if you didn't go blind or deaf, you didn't fall to your death, there might be other joys that awaited you, such as losing your arm or leg. Now, that could mean that their arm or leg was cut off in the process of building the ship, or more likely, the limb was crushed while working on the ship and then had to be amputated later on in the hospital. Thankfully, Harlan and Wolf actually bought a new ambulance that was 
They are on standby in case of emergencies, and the first time it was used was for a worker, George Stewart, who was crushed while working on a crane. And just when the workers thought that they were safe, the ships were built, the ship was going to be launched, everything was gravy. Uh, no. Unfortunately, James Dobbin, who was knocking out the wooden support beams for the Titanic when the Titanic was being launched from her slipway, actually got caught. His foot got pinned down by one of the beams um, as the Titanic was heading down, and he had to be dragged away by his co-workers. Um, and unfortunately, he did die later on from his wounds the same day. Speaking of the launch, that was May 31st, 1911, and the Olympic was actually floating nearby as she was set to sail for her maiden voyage that day. Now, four grandstands were built pretty much for the VIPs and the press, and the shipyard workers had to find a space wherever they could. Now, for the launch ceremony, a lot of ships, when they're first christened and launched, a Champagne bottle is broken on the side of the ship, and they say, you know, I now christen this ship, whatever the name of the ship is. The Titanic didn't get that, which a lot of people thought, oh, no, this is a bad omen. You know, this is what contributed to the death of the Titanic. But White Star just didn't do things that way. They never christened any of their ships. They never broke a champagne bottle. Instead, what they did is fire a rocket at 12.05 p.m., into the air. Uh, then two other rockets went off before the Titanic slid into the River Lagan. With the launch a success, the Titanic was then towed to the fitting out basin. And then Peary hosted a lunch at the shipyard offices where Morgan, Ismay, and a few other select guests were invited. After that, Andrews and Ismay sailed for Liverpool on the Olympic for her maiden voyage. All right, so now the ship is built. It's all pretty on the outside, and now it has to become all pretty on the inside. But on the outside, uh, we're going to talk about that for a split second because the Titanic was 269 meters long, meaning an in feet, that's 882 feet. So if you stood the Titanic up on her rear, let's say, uh, she was just 31 meters shorter than the Eiffel Tower, to give you an idea of how long this ship was. The Titanic had 10 decks. Eight of them were actually for passengers, and those were decks A through G. And decks A through C were the only ones that spanned the entire length of the ship. And her three propellers were actually each the size of windmills, just to give you an idea of how large those propellers actually were. Now, the rudder was really big, so big that it actually needed its own pair of engines just to steer it. So technically at the time, they only needed the one, but the second was there as a backup. In total, the ship could carry up to 2,435 passengers with 892 crew. So at the end of the day, at maximum capacity, the Titanic could carry a total of 3,327 souls. When it came to the passengers, a lot of thought was given to how the ship was fitted out. So first of all, Andrews had to approve any of the changes that were made. So to him and, you know, his co-workers at Harlan and Wolf, luxury really meant the quality of the materials used. So they really liked things like mahogany, whereas Ismay, he saw luxury as having space. So he wanted to give as much possible so that the passengers could really enjoy their journey aboard the Titanic. 
Yeah, and as we said earlier, Ismay and Andrews uh, accompanied the Olympic on her maiden voyage. That was so they could make any changes and updates a to the Olympic and most importantly to the Titanic afterwards. And one of the most um, obvious changes really that Ismay wanted to make was the deck space. So he figured that the deck space on the Olympic, it was there was way too much of it. You know, passengers weren't taking advantage of it as much as they thought they would. So he wanted to use that deck space in order to create more passenger cabins on the Titanic, uh, most of which went to first class. On B-Deck, two first-class suites were added. They had two bedrooms, a bathroom, and servants' quarters. Just to give you an idea of how much it actually cost, it would be 870 pounds. Per trip. Per trip. And one of these suites was always on reserve for J.P. Morgan for him to use whenever he was crossing. As for the rest of the ship, there was one grand staircase three electric elevators, and a number of stairways that could be used to move about from deck to deck. There was also a dining saloon, a lounge, reading and writing room, lending library, veranda cafe, barber shop. Now, all those things I just mentioned were for first-class passengers. We haven't yet gotten to the amenities for third- and second-class passengers. First-class suites had actual beds, they had telephones, and they had panoramic windows rather than portholes. Now, that grand staircase I mentioned also had a large glass dome sitting atop it. So if you've seen the movie uh, Titanic by James Cameron, you'll remember that glass structure that sits above the uh, grand staircase where Rose and Jack meet for that first-class dining experience uh, that uh, James Cameron actually does a really good job of destroying later on when the ship is sinking. While third-class passengers couldn't enjoy the grand staircase and the beautiful glass dome, The designers of the ship really wanted everyone to have a memorable and comfortable experience aboard the Titanic. So while the third class was simple in design, it was far better than what they may have experienced at home, but definitely better than any of the other liners. And if anybody aboard the Titanic fell sick during the journey, they did have a modern sick bay and a fully equipped operating room. So now it's time for the tech talk. The Titanic was really modernized in terms of technology. There were so many different safety features that were installed in the ship to make sure that both passengers and crew were kept safe during the voyage. So the Titanic had the -the state-of-the-art fire detection system, and this was because the ship was lit by 10,000 electric lights. So they were really worried about a fire breaking out. Not to mention that the first-class cabins actually had individual electric heaters. Yeah, and then, you know, going on the whole tech thing, there was a 50-phone switchboard with its own operator on board the ship so that, A, um, the passengers could call stewards if needed, but most importantly, so crew members could communicate with one another across the ship um, instead of, you know, running across the ship, which would take way too much time, especially when that the Titanic did sight that iceberg. However, the telephone system was only for the Titanic. They couldn't communicate with anyone on land. Instead, the Marconi wireless system was actually used for that. So before that, the only way to get in contact with other ships was through flags or signals, but the Marconi wireless actually changed all of that. Now ships could send messages over thousands of miles, so that's good for um, the officers 
because they would need to send messages to other ships or receive them, especially when, you know, ships were passing on those ice warnings. And the first-class passengers also enjoyed the Marconi wireless system very much because it was shiny and new, and they wanted to send a message to people who were on land or who were on other ships just to be like, hey, guys, guess what? Guess where I am right now? That's right. I'm on the Titanic. Where are you? Not on the Titanic. Now, something that made the Titanic really, really, really state-of-the-art, I mean, you'll never guess what it is. But I'll tell you because, you know, we're really, really nice. That would be running water. Running hot and cold water. Which doesn't sound all that state of the art um, for us living in 2018, as most countries in the world have running hot and cold water. But in 1912, that wasn't the case, especially, um, you know, for some of the third class passengers who were getting on board. And, you know, it was something that was updated for the um, Olympic class liners. Earlier, we mentioned that there were elevators, three of them. And while there weren't for the use of third-class passengers, the ones in first and second were able to enjoy them. And I know that doesn't sound like, oh, wow, an elevator, what? At the time, while it was common for department stores and buildings in general in the U.S. and England to have elevators, it was still somewhat of a novelty to be able to use them at all times as there was meant to be an attendant operating them all the time. As there was on the Titanic. So as all this tech is being installed, as every, you know, all those luxurious materials are being brought in to make the inside of the Titanic absolutely beautiful, Bruce Ismay was also busy at work. Um, You know, he got the pier sorted out. Now he's set a date for the maiden voyage of the Titanic. March 20th, 1912. Yeah, so, you know, now... They're in a race. They're trying to get the Titanic fitted out. The Olympic is already out there doing her thing, sailing, getting passengers from one place to another. But then the maiden voyage of the Titanic had to be delayed because the HMS Hawk collided with the Olympic, smashed into her side, and there was a gash torn in the hull of the Olympic. But the ship did her duty. She stayed afloat. She did not sink. There were no injuries, and even though two of her watertight compartments were flooded with water, the Olympic made it safely back to port and was brought to Harland and Wolf to be fixed. Now, again, this delayed the Titanic because the Olympic had to be fixed so that she could go back out and do her job ferrying passengers from one continent to another. Now, speaking of safety, lifeboats. You know those things that are supposed to carry passengers if a ship sinks? Well... Anticipating that the Board of Trade would update their regulations, Alexander Carlyle, which was one of, rather, who was one of Harlan and Wolf's directors, proposed using a new davit, which would allow the Titanic to carry 48 lifeboats, which was more than enough to save everyone on board. Now, Peary, who was his brother-in-law, was like, yeah, dude, that's an awesome, awesome plan. But when we go to, you know, pitch this idea... Bring a proposal not just for 48 lifeboats, but for 64 as well. But the Board of Trade didn't do that. Therefore, the number of lifeboats was actually cut from 48 lifeboats to 20. So here's where we start sailing into dangerous waters. Pun 100% intended. All right, so the lifeboats, as Renee said, are being cut from 48 to 20. Now, as we said earlier, the max capacity of people the Titanic can hold is over 3,500. Alone? 
There's over 1,100 people in third class, and the lifeboat capacity for those 20 lifeboats is 1,178 people. So as you can see, you can either fill the lifeboats with third class passengers or start with first class, as they did, and then kind of, you know, oops, oh well, not enough lifeboats. Now, they figured that, you know, 20 lifeboats is more than enough because it was completely unfeasible that the ship would sink and those lifeboats would ever need to be used. It was kind of like, you know, in case of emergency, pull here. But they figured that they would never need to pull here, that the lifeboats would never come into use. It was just completely impossible for the ship to sink and have people, you know, go down into the ocean with it. Plus, they also figured if an accident did happen... That, you know, the Atlantic, the North Atlantic um, shipping lane is incredibly popular. So they figured if something does happen, that there will be a nearby ship. They can ferry passengers over on the lifeboats and come back for the others as well. Plus, it wasn't anything unusual at the time. I mean, all the other ships were doing the exact same thing. They had nowhere near enough lifeboats for the capacity of the entirety of the passengers and crew that they could hold. For instance, the Lusitania and the Mauritania also only had 20 lifeboats on board, but they could carry over 31 or 3,200 people, including the crew, which means they only had enough room on their lifeboats for one-third the passengers. And since the British Board of Trade regulations were completely out of date, nothing was going to be changing anytime soon. And there were no regulations in place at all for a ship the size of the Titanic. Since one of that size had never been built. So with all of that sorted out, um, the Titanic was completed by the end of March, and she was ready to go for her sea trials. Early in the morning on April 2nd, the Titanic set out for her sea trials with a skeleton crew, including Thomas Andrews and Captain Smith. They took her out into the Irish Sea to see what she was capable of. So this included going up to speeds of about 20 knots, even though the Titanic was capable of going a little bit faster. So they also tested her turns, going in circles, you know, emergency stop, which is relatively important, and testing the lowering of the anchors. After a day, she passed with flying colors. Fun fact. So the Titanic was actually supposed to go for her sea trials on April 1st. But that didn't happen. Now, it wasn't because it was superstition and they were like, oh, no, we can't possibly do it on April Fool's Day. It was because of weather. So weather delayed the sea trials by a day, which wasn't a big deal because they were on schedule regardless. Now, Jack Phillips and Harold Bride, the Marconi operators, were also on board for the sea trials. Ismay and Peary were supposed to be on board, but they both got sick, so they couldn't be there. With the sea trials completed, the Titanic was ready to set out to Southampton, uh, which was her first port of call. So a little bit after 8 p.m. on the same night, April 2nd, the Titanic left Belfast Harbor for the last time. She was never seen there again. Somewhere around midnight the next day, which would be Wednesday, April 3rd or Thursday, April 4th, we're not entirely sure. Um, the accounts differ. The Titanic came into Southampton and docked at berth 44, uh, which left just seven days until her maiden voyage. There was a lot of work to be done, which included getting coal onto the ship. Now, in 1911, a year before the Titanic set sail, seamen and firemen went on strike because they wanted to be paid more. So eventually, the ship owners gave in to their demands, but this caused the domino effect. So in August of that year, dockers also striked. And when the soldiers came in to quash the rioting that was going on in Liverpool, Two men were shot dead. Now, later that month, 
The National Railway also went on strike, which was first time ever. And again, two more men were shot dead when the soldiers tried to stop the rioting. Now, flash forward to March of 1912, a month before the Titanic set sail. Coal miners went on strike. Now, with the mine shut, this essentially left a little over a million people, iron workers, steel workers, seamen, without jobs. And even though the government introduced legislation that would provide a minimum wage for these workers, the riots didn't end, or rather the strike didn't end, until April 6th, which was six days before the Titanic set sail. So this left very little time for them to get coal to the Titanic. It takes more time than they had to get the newly mined coal to Southampton and load it onto the ship. So instead, they had to move coal from other liners onto the Titanic so she could leave for her maiden voyage on time. In addition to the coal, other cargo and things that were needed for the maiden voyage were loaded onto the Titanic day after day. This included refrigerated items such as 75,000 pounds of fresh meat, 10,000 pounds of sugar, and 2,200 pounds of coffee. Also, 11,000 pounds of fish, 800 pounds of tea, and 1,000 bottles of wine. Now, there were also over 57,000 pieces of crockery and 29,000 pieces of glassware, such as teacups and wine glasses and dinner plates. Oh my. In addition to 44,000 pieces of cutlery, which included spoons and forks and knives and egg spoons, because you've got to have some of those. As well as 200,000 pieces of laundry, which included blankets, bed sheets, bath towels, you know. All the necessities you need to stay in a hotel. Except tiny shampoo bottles. I don't think they gave them tiny shampoo bottles. And there were also over 3,400 bags of mail. The Titanic was the RMS Titanic, which meant Royal Mail Steamer, because she was allowed to carry letters and um, packages on her ship. And by the way, in terms of what some of the first-class passengers brought on, so there was a Renault car. Which uh, is where the uh, steamy scene happened in the Titanic movie. And then there was Margaret Brown, who brought three crates of ancient artifacts from the ruins of Rome to donate to the Denver Art Museum. Along with the cargo and uh, all those yummy treats and the passengers' expensive things, they were putting coal on the ship as well, thousands of tons of coal starting on April 6th of 1912. Um, It took about 24 hours to load coal onto the ship, after which the entire ship basically had to be cleaned again to remove the black dusting left behind by the coal. And as we were saying, this coal was taken from other liners And when that happened and, you know, these trips are being canceled, the passengers were either updated or upgraded, not updated, to the Titanic or they were just transferred onto another liner that hadn't been coal poached. So the Saturday before the ship sailed, they had to recruit a lot of the crew for the Titanic uh, because, as we mentioned earlier, they had a skeleton crew both during the sea trials and during the time it sailed to Southampton which was awesome news for the people, um, especially the workers of Southampton, because there were thousands of men left without work during that coal strike. So now they could get back to it, start earning again, and providing for their families. The Sunday before the maiden voyage was actually Easter Sunday, so nobody was working because Easter Sunday, guys. But Monday, Tuesday, everybody was back to work as it was just mere days before the Titanic was supposed to set sail on the 10th. And during this entire time, Thomas Andrews was getting last-minute details sorted. 
Now, in regards to the crew, there were three different departments to the crew, and we're not talking the officers, we're talking uh, the crew, the people who were running things behind the scenes, and that was the deck, the engine, and the victualing, also known as the stewards department. There were about 500s in the stewards department, including two Marconi operators and five postal clerks, and then about 300 of them were stewards and stewardesses. But there was also some funny little jobs, including... A linen keeper. As Adrian likes to say, the keeper of the linen. Totally the keeper of the linen. The, I want a keeper of the linen. <laughs> don't we all? The assistant soup cook. Not a soup cook. Assistant. Dude was specifically trained to assist in the cooking of soup. And the Iceman. Nope, not a villain. Not a hero. Just a guy who handled ice. There were 120 people who were a part of the catering crew, and they were actually with the ship since Belfast. There were also 29 able seamen who were in charge of the day-to-day operations of the ship, as well as launching and manning the lifeboats. Kind of important, considering what happened. There were also seven quartermasters who worked um, on and near the bridge. They actually helped to steer the ship, hoist uh, the signal flags when necessary, and also helped with navigation. There were also six lookouts. They worked in pairs and in two-hour shifts because of how cold it was in the crow's nest. There was also a lamp trimmer who uh, did exactly as it sounds. He tended to all the old-fashioned lamps, trimming the wicks and everything so that everything works properly. And a master at arms and his assistant who were in charge of the gun cabinet. The highest paid of the crew were the engineers and electricians who made sure the generators and everything else, all the other machinery on the ship were running smoothly so that the Titanic could actually do its thing and sail the ocean. Uh, Then there were also greasers who worked alongside the engineers and it's exactly as it sounds. No, not the greasers from Greece or from the outsiders, but men who had to oil and lubricate all the machinery. And then there were the firemen and the stokers who I would argue had the hardest job of all, considering that they were working for four hours nonstop, shoveling the coal into the furnaces. You can imagine how hot it must have been in there, like inferno hot. And then there were the coal trimmers, who did exactly what it sounds like. They trimmed coal, and then they got it down to the firemen. So they also had a very skilled job, though it was the worst paid, in the sense that They had to make sure that the coal was constantly level because that prevented the ship from capsizing considering how much coal was on the ship. In addition, there were also the chefs, the bakers, and butchers, but no candlestick makers. Now, the chefs, bakers, and butchers uh, helped prepare the meals for passengers on board the ship. There was also a kosher cook who was on board to cook the kosher meals for Jewish passengers. Moving out of the kitchen, there were over 300 stewards that did a wide variety of jobs, including, you know, bellboys, shoe shiners, as well as those who took care of the glory hole. For those of you who do not know what that is, that would be the toilet. What a glamorous job that one is. There were also the female crew members, which included the stewardesses, a masseuse, and a Turkish bath attendant. One of the most famous crew members on board the Titanic as a whole was a female crew member by the name of Violet Jessup. She was 24 um, when the Titanic sailed in 1912, the firstborn of Irish immigrants. She was actually born in Argentina. When her mother became ill, Violet became a royal male stewardess. And the reason that she is so famous is because she was on the RMS Olympic when the HMS Hawk hit her. 
She was on the Titanic when it sank, and she was also on the Britannic when it sank. The wealthy passengers brought on board with them their own personal valets, chauffeurs, and maids. And then there was the band, which was made up of eight men. And unfortunately, they all went down with the Titanic. Now, the bandsmen weren't considered an official member of the crew, so they traveled as second-class passengers. As we mentioned earlier, there was a Marconi operating system on board, which required its own operators. And those operators were... John Phillips, known as Jack Phillips, and Harold Bride. Now, Jack Phillips was only 25 years old at the time the Titanic set sail, and he was already considered one of the most experienced wireless operators in the world. Now, there were five postal clerks, and they, in addition to Bride and Phillips, as well as the 68 a la carte restaurant staff, were not considered White Star employees. They were paid by their respective employers, so that was the General Post Office, Marconi Wireless, as well as the catering company, which was owned by Gaspare Luigi Gatti. Next, we're going to take a look at the officers of the Titanic, who were also known as sailors, because they actually learned to sail on ships when ships still actually had sails. The first and foremost officer is, of course, the captain himself. Edward John Smith, who started working for the White Star Line in 1887, and he captained a total of 17 ships over the course of his entire career for White Star. He was White Star's go-to captain. He was in charge of ships during their sea trials and maiden voyages, as he was for the Olympic and the Titanic. And he was also very popular with the passengers and his crew, to the point where they very fondly called him EJ. Now, the Titanic maiden voyage was actually supposed to be his final voyage as captain. Edward Smith was to retire after the Titanic reached New York. Next in line was Chief Officer Henry Tingle Wild. So he was a last-minute addition to the Titanic. He was originally supposed to be on the Olympic, but when they started shuffling around all the assignments, he got shifted to the Titanic, and as a result, Murdoch and Lightoller were bumped down a station. Now, David Blair was originally supposed to be the second officer on the Titanic, but he was assigned to another ship when all this reassignment was going on. And he's important because he was in charge of the binoculars for the lookouts, the ones that were missing when, you know, they needed them to spot said iceberg. Up next, we have First Officer William McMaster Murdoch. He joined White Star in 1899, and like Captain Smith and Chief Officer Wild, First Officer Murdoch was on the Olympic when the HMS Hawk rammed into her side. And then we have Second Officer Charles Herbert Lightoller, who joined White Star in 1900 and slowly worked his way up the ranks. Next, we have Third Officer Herbert John Pittman, known as Bert to his friends. He was in charge of taking down the readings from the sun and stars and keeping an eye on the decks. Then there was 4th Officer Joseph Boxhall, who was in charge of updating the charts, and by that we mean the ship's location, and he was also in charge of assigning the watches. Then there's 5th Officer Harold Lowe, for whom the Titanic was actually his first transatlantic crossing. And the last officer, 6th Officer James Paul Moody. He was responsible for recording the air and water temperatures in the ship's log. And last but not least is Purser Herbert McElroy. He was the guy who was in charge of any luggage requests the passengers might have, uh, and by passengers we do mean mostly first-class passengers, the ship's safe, as well as the ticketing for the ship. 
Now we're going to switch gears and talk about the day the Titanic set sail. So first on board was, of course, Thomas Andrews, with the majority of the crew trickling in in the early hours of the morning. Also on board in the morning was Captain Clark, who was there as a representative for the Board of Trade. Now, he was on the ship to give it the last stamp of approval. He gathered some of the crew together to perform a final lifeboat drill. He also checked the supplies on board, such as the water, the food, as well as passenger accommodation, to make sure that everything was a-okay. Once he was sure that everything was good, he signed off and the ship was ready to set sail. Around 9.30 in the morning, the second and third class passengers began arriving. So while the porters were loading the luggage onto the ship, the second class passengers were allowed to tour the first class. Now that was put to an end around 11.30, a half an hour before the ship set sail, because that's when the first class passengers began arriving. Fashionably late, of course. Once they were on board, they were shown to their staterooms. Unlike first and second class passengers who were welcomed onto the ship by the stewards, you know, welcome guys, come on in, welcome to the Titanic, have fun. Third class passengers received a completely different experience. They were brought onto the ship, checked by the medical staff to make sure they were healthy enough to come through the United States Customs, and then their ticket was stamped and they were like, all right, off you go, go find your room. Over 400 first and second class passengers boarded the ship at Southampton, while almost 500 third class passengers embarked many of them with the majority of their belongings because this was a one-way trip for them and there was no going back. In regards to the number of passengers on board, there were 1,317. However, it is important to note that this is just one number. It was the number we came across the most in our research. Now, the reason for the discrepancy is because there is no exact list. There is no exact record of everyone on board because these were handwritten. They weren't typed up. There was no kind of technology for that, such as computers. Obviously, there were typewriters, but they couldn't type it up on a computer, you know, save it, email it to someone, maybe share the document for the next person in line to edit. That didn't exist. So it was like a whisper down the lane kind of thing with everybody rewriting the list. Now, the other issue was the fact that The passenger list didn't take into account the last-minute cancellations, last-minute bookings, the people who frankly either missed the ship didn't show up, or the people that sold or traded their tickets. And then the, the people who had those tickets then, their names were never written down in the passenger list. So in total during the crossing, there were over 320 first-class passengers. These were, you know, the creme de la creme. They never had to touch their luggage or do anything for themselves. It was always done for them. As for second-class... There were over 270 second-class passengers. So this included businessmen, clergymen, pretty much anyone that would have enjoyed first-class accommodations on another liner. And in third-class... There were over 700 third-class passengers, also known as steerage, and they were mostly European immigrants searching for a better life for themselves. During the entire journey, they would be separated from the first and second-class passengers because, well, I mean, the first class couldn't possibly mix and mingle with those far below them. Heaven forbid. As a part of those totals, there were over 100 children on board, 5 in first class, 22 in second class, and 76 in third. Now, it is astounding the sheer amount of children that did not make it off the ship. 
However, that's a discussion for a later time. The largest family on board was the Sage family, so that included the mother, the father, and all nine of their children, aged anywhere between 4 to 20 years old. The youngest passenger on board, and if you're a fan of Titanic history, you will have heard of her, young Miss Milvina Dean, who was only two months old at the time, and her brother Bertram, who was a year old. And when the Titanic set sail, there were several couples on board celebrating their honeymoon, ready to start the next chapter of their lives. All right, so it's April 10th, 1912. The ship is ready to set sail. The passengers are boarding. They're getting settled in. There were, however, some crew who did not make it on the ship. The ship sailed off without them. So the story goes like this. A couple of the crew decided it would be a grand old time, one last hurrah, before the ship goes across the Atlantic Ocean to go out to the pub the morning of the departure. Now, they were cutting it super close on their way back. As a result, they were not allowed onto the ship. They got angry, they were pointing, they were shouting, and doesn't matter. Six Officer Moody was like, that's tough luck. Get lost. And six stand-ins instead were taken on the ship in their place. Now, the guys who were left behind, they were the lucky ones. Luckily, the Titanic was not booked to capacity for her maiden voyage. As we already mentioned, a few crew and passengers missed the takeoff. Now, there were also those who canceled, such as J.P. Morgan, who decided to extend his trip in Europe. There was also George Vanderbilt and his wife. They decided to change their minds um, after a family member was like, oh, no, it's really bad to go on a maiden voyage. You shouldn't do that. So it's noon. A crowd is lining the dockside. People are waving. People are cheering. Goodbye. Titanic is about to set sail. The gangway is pulled back. The moorings are cut. And a handful of tiny little tugboats steer the Titanic away from her berth and into the river test. Now, when the Titanic is positioned to point downstream, they cut their lines and the Titanic booms to life. Because of the Titanic's size, she was a bit harder to handle in the river test. And because of how powerful her engines were, it created a suction effect in the water, which pulled in things around her, which is actually what happened with the HMS Hawk when she hit the Olympic side. Now, in this case, it was the New York, which was sitting in the pier. Um, Her mooring line snapped, and her stern swung out towards the Titanic. Captain Smith, due to his many years of service as a White Star captain, gave the order to have the engines reversed, And it was a near miss. The ships came so close to one another that it was basically the length of your outstretched arms. With the near miss left behind, the Titanic is now on her way to Cherbourg for the second leg of her journey where she will pick up more passengers. And this is where we're going to leave you guys. So next time we're going to pick up with the arrival in Cherbourg and what happens next. Guys, thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of Dear World Love History. Head over to DearWorldLoveHistory.com for this episode's show notes, the link for which is also below in the description. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at Dear Historians and Instagram at Outlandish Historians. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do leave us a review on iTunes and let us know. Historians out!